Chapter Four, Part Two of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Four, Part Two. Anthony Trollope. I alighted just now at a venture upon the history of Frank Fenwick. It is far from being a conspicuous work in the immense list of Trollope's novels but to choose an example one must choose arbitrarily for examples of almost anything that one may wish to say are numerous to embarrassment in speaking of a writer who produced so much and produced always in the same way there is perhaps a certain unfairness in choosing at all as no work has higher pretensions than any other, there may be a certain unkindness in holding an individual production up to the light. Judge me in the lump, we can imagine the author saying. I have only undertaken to entertain the British public. I don't pretend that each of my novels is an organic whole. Trollope had no time to give his tales a classic roundness, Yet there is, in spite of an extraordinary defect, something of that quality in the thing that first revealed him. The Warden was published in 1855. It made a great impression, and when, in 1857, Barchester Towers followed it, everyone saw that English literature had a novelist the more. These were not the works of a young man, for Anthony Trollope had been born in 1815. It is remarkable to reflect, by the way, that his prodigious fecundity he had published before the warden three or four novels which attracted little attention, was enclosed between his fortieth and his sixty-seventh years. Trollope had lived long enough in the world to learn a good deal about it, and his maturity of feeling and evidently large knowledge of English life were for much in the effect produced by the two clerical tales. It was easy to see that he would take up room. What he had picked up, to begin with, was a comprehensive, various impression of the clergy of the Church of England, and the manners and feelings that prevail in cathedral towns. This, for a while, was his speciality, and, as always happens in such cases, the public was disposed to prescribe to him that path. He knew about bishops, archdeacons, prebendaries, precentors, and about their wives and daughters. He knew what these dignitaries say to each other when they are collected together, aloof from secular ears. He even knew what sort of talk goes on between a bishop and a bishop's lady when the august couple are enshrouded in the privacy of the episcopal bedroom. This knowledge, somehow, was rare and precious. No one as yet had been bold enough to snatch the illuminating torch from the very summit of the altar. Trollope enlarged his field very speedily. There is, as I remember that work, as little as possible of the ecclesiastical in the tale of the three clerks, which came after Barchester Towers. But he always retained traces of his early divination of the clergy. He introduced them frequently, and he always did them easily and well. 
there is no ecclesiastical figure however so good as the first no creation of this sort so happy as the admirable mr harding the warden is a delightful tale and a signal instance of trollope's habit of offering us the spectacle of a character a motive more delicate more slender as well as more charming could scarcely be conceived it is simply the history of an old man's conscience the good and gentle mr harding precentor of barchester cathedral also holds the post of warden of hiram's hospital an ancient charity where twelve old paupers are maintained in comfort the office is in the gift of the bishop and its emoluments are as handsome as the duties of the place are small mr harding has for years drawn his salary in quiet gratitude but his moral repose is broken by hearing it at last begun to be said that the wardenship is a sinecure that the salary is a scandal and that a large part at least of his easy income ought to go to the pensioners of the hospital he is sadly troubled and perplexed and when the great london newspapers take up the affair he is overwhelmed with confusion and shame he thinks the newspapers are right he perceives that the warden is an overpaid and rather a useless functionary the only thing he can do is to resign the place he has no means of his own he is only a quiet modest innocent old man with a taste a passion for old church music and the violoncello but he determines to resign and he does resign in spite of the sharp opposition of his friends he does what he thinks right and goes to live in lodgings over a shop in the barchester high street that is all the story and it has exceeding beauty the question of mr harding's resignation becomes a drama and we anxiously wait for the catastrophe trollope never did anything happier than the picture of this sweet and serious little old gentleman who on most of the occasions of life has shown a lamb-like softness and compliance but in this particular matter opposes a silent impenetrable obstinacy to the arguments of the friends who insist on his keeping his sinecure fixing his mild detached gaze on the distance and making imaginary passes with his fiddle-bow while they demonstrate his pusillanimity the subject of the warden exactly viewed is the opposition of the two natures of archdeacon grantly and mr harding and there is nothing finer in all trollope than the vividness with which this opposition is presented the archdeacon is as happy a portrait as the precentor an image of the full-fed worldly churchman taking his stand squarely upon his rich temporalities and regarding the church frankly as a fat social pasturage it required the greatest tact and temperance to make the picture of archdeacon grantly stop just where it does the type impartially considered is detestable but the individual may be full of amenity trollope allows his archdeacon all the virtues he was likely to possess but he makes his spiritual grossness wonderfully natural 
no charge of exaggeration is possible for we are made to feel that he is conscientious as well as arrogant and expansive as well as hard he is one of those figures that spring into being all at once solidifying in the author's grasp these two capital portraits are what we carry away from the warden which some persons profess to regard as our writer's masterpiece we remember while it was still something of a novelty to have heard a judicious critic say that it had much of the charm of the vicar of wakefield anthony trollope would not have accepted the compliment and would not have wished this little tale to pass before several of its successors he would have said very justly that it gives too small a measure of his knowledge of life it has however a certain classic roundness though as we said a moment since there is a blemish on its fair face the chapter on dr pessimist anticant and mr sentiment would be a mistake almost inconceivable if trollope had not in other places taken pains to show us that for certain forms of satire the more violent doubtless he had absolutely no gift dr anticant is a parody of carlyle and mr sentiment is an exposure of dickens and both these little jeux d'esprit are as infelicitous as they are misplaced it was no less luckless an inspiration to convert archdeacon grantly's three sons denominated respectively charles james henry and samuel into little effigies of three distinguished english bishops of that period whose well-known peculiarities are reproduced in the description of these unnatural urchins the whole passage as we meet it is a sudden disillusionment we are transported from the mellow atmosphere of an assimilated barchester to the air of ponderous allegory i may take occasion to remark here upon a very curious fact the fact that there are certain precautions in the way of producing that illusion dear to the intending novelist which trollope not only habitually scorned to take but really as we may say asking pardon for the heat of the thing delighted wantonly to violate he took a suicidal satisfaction in reminding the reader that the story he was telling was only after all a make-believe he habitually referred to the work in hand in the course of that work as a novel and to himself as a novelist and was fond of letting the reader know that this novelist could direct the course of events according to his pleasure already in barchester towers he falls into this pernicious trick in describing the wooing of eleanor bold by mr arabin he has occasion to say that the lady might have acted in a much more direct and natural way than the way he attributes to her but if she had he adds where would have been my novel the last chapter of the same story begins with the remark the end of a novel like the end of a children's dinner party must be made up of sweetmeats and sugar plums 
these little slaps at credulity we might give many more specimens are very discouraging but they are even more inexplicable for they are deliberately inartistic even judged from the point of view of that rather vague consideration of form which is the only canon we have a right to impose upon trollope it is impossible to imagine what a novelist takes himself to be unless he regard himself as a historian and his narrative as a history it is only as a historian that he has the smallest locus standi as a narrator of fictitious events he is nowhere to insert into his attempt a backbone of logic he must relate events that are assumed to be real this assumption permeates animates all the work of the most solid story-tellers we need only mention to select a single instance the magnificent historical tone of balzac who would as soon have thought of admitting to the reader that he was deceiving him as garrick or john kemble would have thought of pulling off his disguise in front of the footlights therefore when trollope suddenly winks at us and reminds us that he is telling us an arbitrary thing we are startled and shocked in quite the same way as if macaulay or motley were to drop the historic mask and intimate that william of orange was a myth or the duke of alva an invention it is a part of this same ambiguity of mind as to what constitutes evidence that trollope should sometimes endow his people with such fantastic names dr pessimist anticant and mr sentiment make as we have seen an awkward appearance in a modern novel and mr never say die mr stick at it mr rerechild and mr filgrave the two last the family physicians are scarcely more felicitous it would be better to go back to bunyan at once there is a person mentioned in the warden under the name of mr quiverful a poor clergyman with a dozen children who holds the living of puddingdale this name is a humorous allusion to his overflowing nursery and it matters little so long as he is not brought to the front but in barchester towers which carries on the history of hiram's hospital mr quiverful becomes as a candidate for mr harding's vacant place an important element and the reader is made proportionately unhappy by the primitive character of this satiric note a mr quiverful with fourteen children which is the number attained in barchester towers is too difficult to believe in we can believe in the name and we can believe in the children but we cannot manage the combination it is probably not unfair to say that if trollope derived half his inspiration from life he derived the other half from thackeray his earlier novels in especial suggest an honourable emulation of the author of the newcomes thackeray's names were perfect they always had a meaning and except in his absolutely jocose productions where they are still admirable we can imagine even when they are most figurative that they should have been born by real people 
but in this as in other respects trollope's hand was heavier than his master's though when he is content not to be too comical his appellations are sometimes fortunate enough mrs proudie is excellent for mrs proudie and even the duke of omnium and gatherum castle rather minister to illusion than destroy it indeed the names of houses and places throughout trollope are full of colour i would speak in some detail of barchester towers if this did not seem to commit me to the prodigious task of appreciating each of trollope's works in succession such an attempt as that is so far from being possible that i must frankly confess to not having read everything that proceeded from his pen there came a moment in his vigorous career it was even a good many years ago when i renounced the effort to keep up with him it ceased to seem obligatory to have read his last story it ceased soon to be very possible to know which was his last before that i had been punctual devoted and the memories of the earlier period are delightful it reached if i remember correctly to about the publication of he knew he was right after which to my recollection oddly enough too for that novel was good enough to encourage a continuance of past favours as the shopkeepers say the picture becomes dim and blurred the author of orley farm and the small house at allington ceased to produce individual works his activity became a huge serial here and there in the vast fluidity an organic particle detached itself the last chronicle of barset for instance is one of his most powerful things it contains the sequel of the terrible history of mr crawley the starving curate an episode full of that literally truthful pathos of which trollope was so often a master and which occasionally raised him quite to the level of his two immediate predecessors in the vivid treatment of english life great artists whose pathetic effects were sometimes too visibly prepared for the most part however he should be judged by the productions of the first half of his career later the strong wine was rather too copiously watered his practice his acquired facility were such that his hand went of itself as it were and the thing looked superficially like a fresh inspiration but it was not fresh it was rather stale and though there was no appearance of effort there was a fatal dryness of texture it was too little of a new story and too much of an old one some of these ultimate compositions phineas redux phineas finn is much better the prime minister john caldegate the american senator the duke's children betray the dull impersonal rumble of the mill wheel what stands trollope always in good stead in addition to the ripe habit of writing is his various knowledge of the english world to say nothing of his occasionally laying under contribution the american his american portraits by the way 
they are several in number, are always friendly. They hit it off more happily than the attempt to depict American character from the European point of view is accustomed to do. Though, indeed, as we ourselves have not yet learned to represent our types very finely, are not apparently even very sure what our types are. It is perhaps not to be wondered at that transatlantic talent should miss the mark. The weakness of transatlantic talent in this particular is apt to be want of knowledge. But Trollope's knowledge has all the air of being excellent, though not intimate. Had he indeed striven to learn the way to the American heart? No less than twice, and possibly even oftener, has he rewarded the merit of a scion of the British aristocracy with the hand of an American girl. The American girl was destined sooner or later to make her entrance into British fiction, and Trollope's treatment of this complicated being is full of good humor and of that fatherly indulgence, that almost motherly sympathy, which characterizes his attitude throughout toward the youthful feminine. He has not mastered all the springs of her delicate organism, nor sounded all the mysteries of her conversation. Indeed, as regards these latter phenomena, he has observed a few of which he has been the sole observer. I got to be thinking if any one of them should ask me to marry him, words attributed to Miss Boncassen in The Duke's Children have much more the note of English-American than of American-English. But on the whole, in these matters, Trollope does very well. His fund of acquaintance with his own country, and indeed with the world at large, was apparently inexhaustible, and it gives his novels a spacious geographical quality, which we should not know where to look for elsewhere in the same degree, and which is the sign of an extraordinary difference between such an horizon as his and the limited world outlook, as the Germans would say, of the brilliant writers who practice the art of realistic fiction on the other side of the channel. Trollope was familiar with all sorts and conditions of men, with the business of life, with affairs, with the great world of sport, with every component part of the ancient fabric of English society. He had travelled more than once all over the globe, and for him, therefore, the background of the human drama was a very extensive scene. He had none of the pedantry of the cosmopolite, he remained a sturdy and sensible middle-class Englishman, but his work is full of implied reference to the whole arena of modern vagrancy. He was for many years concerned in the management of the post-office, and we can imagine no experience more fitted to impress a man with the diversity of human relations it is possibly from this source that he derived his fondness for transcribing the letters of his lovelorn maidens and other embarrassed persons. No contemporary storyteller deals so much in letters. The modern English epistle, very happily imitated for the most part, is his unfailing resource. End of chapter 4, part 2 
Anthony Trollope.